This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. PRT, where are we now and what's on the horizon? Title as given by Josh Mailman. So, these are cells, and these are not neuroendocrine tumor cells, but I just wanted to point out that on the surface of cells, and particularly neuroendocrine tumor cells, we have these receptors, right? The somatostatin receptor is on the surface of tumor cells and neuroendocrine tumor cells. So this, everything we've talked about with somatostatin receptor PET is predicated on the fact that neuroendocrine tumor cells express the somatostatin receptor, right? And we talked about this before, the octreotide analogs. On the left there, we have the DOTA chelator. That's going to bind to gallium for somatostatin receptor PET. But when we talk about PRT, we're going to put lutetium 177 in there. Right? So the exact same molecule in this case will be used for imaging like in the last talk or for therapy as in this talk. And so let's go through PRT really quickly. So peptide, so that's this molecule that we just looked at, right? We have the DOTA chelator and the somatostatin analog. We're going to take that peptide, the DOTA XXX, DOTA talk or DOTA tape. It's going to bind to the receptor on the cell surface and go inside of the tumor cell it's going to carry on it the radionuclide, right? So that somatostatin analog is going to carry the radionuclide or the lutetium-177 into the tumor. And when it's inside the tumor cell, that lutetium is going to decay and give off radiation and hopefully kill the cell, right? So that's PRRT, peptide receptor radionuclide therapy. Just want to make sure everyone's sort of on the same page as to the definition of the term and what we're talking about here. Now, here is a dotatate pet in a patient who has quite extensive disease. And the thing that's really nice about this is that we select patients. I look at the dotatate pet and I say, yes, this patient has a lot of somatostatin receptors on their cell. We give the therapy. This is a SPECT CT or a planar image, right? That technology I talked about in the last talk, a planar image of the patient after the therapy. And we can image where the radioactivity for the therapy went. And it matches, right? We can use the pet imaging to demonstrate that the receptor's there so we can predict that the therapy is going to go to the tumor, right? And so that's the thing that's really neat about this is it's very sort of, we talk about this precision medicine. This is the definition of precision medicine, right? We defined using imaging where the receptor is, and then we treat that receptor using the exact same molecule. Now, here's the example that we always like to show, right? We have a woman who had progressive neuroendocrine tumor on Sandostat, in this case was liver dominant. We then got four cycles of lutetium dotate, and lo and behold, isn't that wonderful? Everything sort of went away. Now, this is what we would love to see in every patient. It's very unusual to have this type of response. Only 15% of patients have shrinkage of tumor, and particularly on the NETR1 trial that was published in 2017, it was 13 to 15%. So this is an unusual outcome, but it can demonstrate efficacy like this. Now, let's talk a little bit about the protocol. What we do and what everyone does is we give these amino acids, and we'll talk a bit a little more about the amino acids, and that goes over usually about four to four and a half hours. During that amino acid administration, we give the radioactivity or the lutetium-177 dotatate for about 30 minutes. So the actual therapy only takes about 30 minutes, but we are in the hospital for about four to five hours because of this amino acids that's being given to protect the kidneys. Now, we do that four times every two months, and Dr. Bergensler mentioned this, right? So at initial time point, we do our first treatment. Then typically we do labs a month later. We retreat at the end of month two. Then we do labs and imaging, and then we treat again, and then labs, and then treat, and then labs. And usually I see patients both between three and four and after month seven, okay? So this is like a six-month-long process, and the treatment is given every two months, okay? So four treatments given every two months. This is the standard therapy that was administered in that NETR1 trial. And this 
this is the results of the Netter 1 trial using that treatment uh, methodology. And you can see that there was a big difference in something called progression-free survival. Right? Progression-free survival is the amount of time on imaging that it took for the lesions to grow again. Okay, so you treat patients with, on the control arm here, it was double-dose sanostatin or with lutetium-177 dotatate, and then you, in essence, watch them over time till those lesions started growing again. And you can see on the top there, the top lines, the lutetium dotatate, out to about 30 months, we still haven't had 50% of patients progressing, whereas on the control arm, it only took about 10 or 11 months for the patients to have progression. So a marked increase in the amount of time it took for disease to start progressing in patients who were treated with lutetium dotatate. And this is why everyone was so excited about this, although at the same time, there wasn't a lot of decrease in size of lesions. Again, only about 13 to 15% of patients had their lesions decrease on this trial, which was actually somewhat surprising. These are the number of treatments we've done so far every month at UCSF, and we continue to increase, mainly as we increase our bandwidth and get more comfortable. Uh, we've really made a lot of changes in the last six months to increase this. In the month of February, we have 12 patients we're treating uh, with lutetium dotate, and that will obviously keep increasing as we move forward. There is a question about what about non-midgut neuroendocrine tumors. The NETR1 trial was performed only in patients who had progressive midgut neuroendocrine tumors. And there's a lot of literature, particularly out of Europe, retrospectively looking at patients who got treated with PRT who did not have midgut. And so, for example, here, if you look at the pancreas line, it's a little bit of a busy table. But in this European series, 55% of pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors in this paper had a complete response or partial response, which is obviously much higher than reported the Netter 1 trial, and you'll even notice up here uh, the, the uh, response rate in midgut, the first line there was 31% of patients had a partial response or complete response to shrinkage of their tumor. So uh, probably a little biased because they don't have blinded central reviews and everything, but still there clearly seems to be efficacy of this in pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, which is why the FDA included this in the initial approval. So it's approved in gastroenteropancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. Now, there's other types of tumors, for example, like parapheochromocytoma or, or paraganglioma and pheochromocytoma. And there is, actually, I just wanted to note that there's a trial going on at the NIH and 90 patients treating patients with lutetium dotatate uh, with parophia. And I think these types of trials need to be done, particularly for the types of diseases that aren't studied as much as midgut or pancreas. And the other main hole here is going to be bronchial carcinoids, and hopefully we'll get a trial up and running looking at the therapy of bronchial carcinoids using lutetium. 177 dotatate. So I want to make a quick comment on patient selection. So I showed you earlier, right, spec CT, planar imaging, and then I showed you a PET and how well we can see things on a PET compared to planar imaging or spec imaging using Octria scan. So the Netter 1 trial imaged patients who were positive on planar Octria scan. Right? The, the technology that has the least ability to detect neuroendocrine tumor. So here's an example of a patient on the right, a different patient, planar, Octria scan, totally negative. Even the spect from the Octria scan is negative. And you can see there's disease there that's markedly brighter or hotter than the liver. Okay? So if you were to look at the left image, the PET image, the dotate PET, and use the criteria they used on the number one mean, and the criteria was, was it equal to or above the liver in terms of intensity? You look at that and you say, yeah, that's above the liver for sure. This patient would have met technically inclusion criteria using the dotate PET for the Netter 1. But if you use the Octria scan, they wouldn't have made it. And so my point is, particularly patients with smaller volume disease, you would technically be applicable to get PRT if you have small volume disease using dotate PET. But keep in mind that most of the trials that report with neuroendocrine tumors used Octria scan. 
And so there's a bias on over-enrolling, I guess, or having increased inclusion of people with smaller volume disease using dotatate PET. And we actually did this analysis looking at 150 patients from the NIH, uh, comparing, and don't worry about the numbers, but the, what this is showing is that patients who have negative Octrea scans are oftentimes very positive on dotatate PET, and it's hard for us to really understand at what volume of disease should we start treating patients with dotatate or with uh, Lutathera or Lutetium-177 dotatate. So this, there's sort of a gray area here, particularly in small volume patients who all have positive disease on dotatate PET, whether or not they should be treated with lutetium-177 dotatate. Okay. The other thing to keep in mind from the NETR-1 trial is that there's actually a good improvement in the quality of life. So if you get treated with lutetium-177 dotatate, people had less diarrhea, felt better after therapy overall on average. So that's actually really encouraging that not only was there a prolongation of progression, you didn't progress as quickly, but also patients were better off during that period of time between the therapy and progression. I think this is a really important thing as well with lutetium-177 dotatate. I think hematologic toxicity is the one I probably get the most difficulty with uh, in terms of patients. Uh, everyone nearly gets transient anemias. Blood counts will go down because the bone marrow is very sensitive to radiation, so your red blood cells or platelets will go down. But the main issue uh, with hematologic or bone marrow toxicities is development of potential leukemia or myelosplastic syndrome. And that can happen two to five years after therapy. And we don't know who it's going to happen in, and it seems to be sporadic. And this happens in about 1 in 30 to 1 in 40 patients. So not that common, but when it happens, it's a serious issue for the patients. And I think uh, I have, in older patients, this seems to be an easier conversation because the benefit's fairly high and the risk is low. But in younger patients, if you're 33 and you're considering taking a treatment and then developing leukemia at some point in time, that becomes a really significant concern in those patients. And I think it's very hard for patients to weigh the small risk of leukemia against the potential benefit of PRT. And I think this is something I struggle with a lot when I counsel patients as to whether or not we want to do PRT. The other thing is renal protection. So there is issues with renal toxicity, and we give these amino acid solutions. We used to give this aminosin 2, and I like to have a slide where I can put an X through it because the aminosin 2 is the worst thing ever for patients. People were having severe nausea and vomiting. We had to pre-medicate them. And we've now looked back at all of our patients who've gotten this compounded amino acid versus aminosin. With the new compounded amino acids, only 1 in 20 patients have complained about nausea and vomiting compared to 71% with aminosin 2. And that's with, in essence, no antiemetics with the new compounded amino acids. So it's made a huge difference. And the other thing is actually decreased our administration time dramatically. We can give the amino acids faster. And so the patients now are getting out between noon or 1, in the, you know, so early in the day instead of 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So this has really had a huge impact on the patient experience getting PRT. And I think now most centers in the country are starting to get this up and running at their site. So hopefully the discussion of the aminosin 2 will go away. Uh, as we move forward. And this is to show that on the right here with lutetium-177 dotatate, the rate of severe kidney injury caused by the radioactivity is in essence zero when you use uh, the amino acid protection. So I'm not too worried about renal toxicity in general. I put in this slide of radiation safety, and I, 
I, and the gray box on the right are the take-home points I want people to have. This is a safe therapy when it comes to radiation therapy. The amount of radioactivity patients give off when they leave the day of therapy is lower than the threshold that our government requires us to give recommendations for radiation safety to the patient. So we're, in essence, being overcautious, trying to advise people to how to minimize risk to those around. I usually focus on young family members. If you have a four-year-old at home, that's something I want to focus on, mainly because with young children, I want to be overcautious. Um, but there's really, if you, if you get treated with this, it's a very low risk to people around you. And if you're more than six feet away from someone, you're, in essence, giving them no exposure. Okay? So distance is really important, as is time. So you want to decrease your time and distance. And the last one there is sort of amusing, but animals are safe. Don't worry about being around your animals if you've been treated with lutetium-177 dotatate. And I think this afternoon, if there's more questions about radiation safety, we can answer those as we go forward. So some things to think about. So first, not all symptoms are the same. So here is a patient with a metastasis in the mesentery causing a small bowel obstruction. Case a small volume of a bowel tumor causing a significant morbidity in the patient. PRT is not going to get rid of this symptom. Okay? I showed you the outcomes in the NETR1 trial had improvement in diarrhea and things like that, but this is not something that's going to be improved with PRT. So not every type of symptom is going to be ameliorated by administering PRT to a patient. I think that's something important to keep in mind. The PRT will prevent this mass from getting bigger, but it might actually make the symptoms worse because the radiation can worsen the fibrosis. And there's another example here. This is a patient on the left there had a pretreatment dotate pet, and this is sort of a, a pretty high-volume disease patient. And you can see treatment one, treatment two, treatment three using the planar imaging I was talking about. So there's this large mesenteric mass in this patient. You can see that sort of bar of act like blackness or whiteness in the middle of the abdomen. And that caused, in this patient, a lot of ascites and bowel pain because it sort of constricted off the blood flow as the radiation went to this tumor. And that got better over time and went back to baseline. But transiently, the radiation can cause sort of swelling of the tumor and a lot of symptoms. So in this patient in particular, it was very hard to tolerate the PRT because of the location of the tumor and things like that. So these types of things you need to think about when you're treating patients with PRT. Here's another thing to think about, need for debulking versus progression. So here's a patient who presented with very bulky liver disease. And in this patient, we could treat with PRT, but PRT doesn't really shrink tumors very much. So maybe in this patient, you want to start with liver-directed therapy, like taste or something else. They'll have a much better job of shrinking your tumor. And so thinking about how to interplay PRT with liver-directed therapy, I think, is a struggle for us all, and we've been working on it. Here's an example of a patient also who had liver-dominant neuroendocrine tumor. And this patient then underwent three tastes. So you can see the liver tumor has gotten much better, but now we have new metastases. For example, in the chest, there's a new lesion, and down in the pelvis, there's a new lesion. Now, at this time, we now are just starting this patient on PRT. But this is a type of model where you sort of merge PRT with liver-directed therapy together to use the debulking aspect of liver-directed therapy and then using PRT to prevent the progression moving forward. And I think as we start to learn how to juggle these different types of therapies, this is sort of what we're getting better at as our community understands the role of PRT. Here's another example. I, I turn this, what's progressing? Uh, I don't have a little lighter, so it's hard to show this, but there's a lesion in the liver there right in the middle of the patient that's getting much bigger over time, much faster than the other lesions in the body. And the other thing about it is that lesion has lower uptake than the rest of the lesions. And so the lower uptake, remember, is concerning for higher grade or more progressive tumor. In this case, it actually wasn't more uh, higher grade, but it was progressing faster. And so what we ended up doing is tasting this. So we taste just that one lesion in the, in the left lobe of the liver, that lesion's dead, and now this patient's starting 
PRT. Again, combining sort of liver-directed therapy with PRT, depending on the location and the rate of growth of the different lesions in the patient. And I think Dr. Bergsland should put up that slide of the interdisciplinary team, which is really important to think about how each of the pieces fit together. And I really am lucky to work with Dr. Bergsland and how to think about with, you know, interventional radiology, with medical oncology, how to do these treatments together. And so it's not always PRT first or second or anything. It's really thinking about each patient individually, taking into account their imaging, and then thinking about how we do therapy. Okay. So I'll have a couple quick slides on moving forward. So I think this is really important. PRT got to the United States, what, a year, nearly exactly a year ago. But we're just getting started. We don't really know how to use this therapy effectively and properly. And there's improvements that we can make going forward. So I listed a whole bunch of things here. We can use different types of peptides, right? Instead of just dotatate, we can use these other ones. We can combine the therapy with other types of therapies. And I think a lot of work will start happening in that. Uh, we can also do patient-specific dosimetry, which I'll talk about at the end. We can use different radioisotopes, or we can even do different routes of administration, like intravenous or intraarterial administration. So here is an example of somatostatin antagonist. This is that different type of peptide, and this peptide has higher uptake in the tumor compared to dotatate, and potentially may be a more effective way of doing therapy. This is currently in phase one, phase two trials, and we'll learn more about this moving forward. I, we're not yet understanding the role of how this will play, but it'll be interesting to see how it happens. Here is a trial using uh, chemotherapy, CAPE-TEM, temozolamide, plus minus PRT, combining together PRT with other types of therapies to improve its efficacy. Um, it'll be interesting to see when this is reported, how it comes out. I'm not totally convinced this is the way to go, but this type of work needs to be done to really understand what's the benefit of these different therapies together. You can also use different types of radioactivity. So the easy one is instead of putting lutetium on there, you can put Y90. Y90 has a different type of energy it gives off that's sort of more effective at killing bigger tumors compared to lutetium. Also probably has some more toxicity. So the role of things like Y90 moving forward with Y90 dotatoc is really unknown, and I think this is a question. And then there's other types of radioactivity. So Y90 and lutetium are both beta emitters, and beta is an electron, so very, very small. But you can have an alpha alpha emitter on the bottom row there, an alpha emitter gives off a huge atom, right? So it gives off helium, which is two protons and two neutrons compared to an electron. So that alpha particle, if an alpha particle goes through a tumor cell, it takes one alpha particle to kill a cell. It takes a thousand electrons to kill a cell. Right? So if you can get alpha particles into your tumor, you're probably going to do really, really well. So how we use things like alpha particles effectively moving forward is a huge area of research, and I think this will be interesting. But this is more on like the five- to seven-year timeline, not the next-year timeline. You can also do intraarterial versus intravenous administration. So this is work out of Heidelberg in Europe where you can see there's much higher uptake when you administer things through the hepatic artery. We've been doing a little work on this, and I think it's a little more complicated than it was initially presented, and I won't go into much detail about the, the explanation behind that, but I think there is a benefit to administering in liver-dominant neuroendocrine tumor patients hepatic arterial uh, lutetium-177 dotatate, and how we leverage that and make that as effective as possible I think is something we need to work on. Now, lastly, I want to talk about sort of the uptake. So this is the hottest net we have, and the SVU max was 160. Uh, you guys probably have looked at your reports and looked at SVU maxes. We actually have a hotter one. I just haven't updated the slide. We've gotten up to 260 now. Right? The hotter you are, right, the more likely you are well differentiated. But if you look in the literature, the hotter you are, 
the better you respond to therapies, the better you respond to octreotide, lanreotide, and sanostatin, but also the better you respond to lutetium-177 dotate. The hotter you are, the more radioactive goes to the tumors, right? And so you're going to have more cell kill. And so how do we take advantage of that? So here's an example of a patient who we treated here. We have a pretreatment dotate PET, and then we have four planar images, right? So those planar images I was talking about. Now, you can use the planar images and, in particular, the SPECT images to actually measure the amount of radioactivity that goes to the tumors. So we can use the SPECT imaging to measure dose to tumors, and theoretically, moving forward, we could try to modulate the dose we administer to a patient to make sure we get enough radioactivity to the tumors. So if you're someone who has an SUV max of 160, maybe we give you a lower dose. If you have an SUV max of 10, maybe we give you a higher dose. And I think we don't exactly know how to do that, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done on how to actually do quantitative dosimetry accurately, so it's not something easily done. But as we move forward, how do we do patient-specific dosimetry using these types of images to actually improve the outcomes just by modulating the dose more than anything else? And I think this has a lot of room to uh, be explored moving forward. In this patient, I think it's very interesting because you can see how their dose is changing. If you see the kidney on the far right here, the U thing is the kidney. You can see how the dose to the kidney goes up dramatically over time and the dose to the lesion in the liver is going down. The biodistribution is changing throughout this patient's therapy, right, because the tumor is being killed, there's more being excreted through the kidneys, and the spleen gets hotter. As you think about how this, A, the images tell us what's going on over time, but also it might inform us that, okay, if we're having this type of response, maybe we want to be changing the dose between the different therapies as the dose of the tumor is being changed. And I think I would really love to see something like this be incorporated into some sort of trial so we can really understand how to use this prospectively more effectively in patients. So in summary, PRT is obviously an important tool for treating a neuroendocrine tumor. I think everyone's on the same page. I think the thing that's hard for some patients and clinicians is PRT is not the best treatment for everyone. I think the hardest thing for me, I'm a, I'm a nuclear medicine physician, so I have a hammer, which is PRT, right? That's all I can do. So it's really hard to think about when it's actually not the right thing to do and how to do it well and safely and in the best interest of the patient with other types of therapies that are available. And then lastly, we have a ton of work to do to optimize PRT, dosimetry, combination therapies, different type of radioactivity, different types of administrations. There's a lot of stuff that many sites around the country are doing to try to figure out how to improve PRT, and I think it's very exciting. And this is really just the beginning of our path. So I want to acknowledge a lot of people. Uh, the neuroendocrine tumor team, we have a bunch of uh, nurse practitioners and RNs who are really important, obviously Dr. Bergsland. Our technologists who do a lot of the therapies when the patients come in to do PRT are very important and make this work and much more smoothly. Um, and then I just want to thank you, the patients, as well as the people who funded a lot of my research. So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.